Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? We're looking at the letter G. Where are we going to start, Mark? Well, I think glam rock will probably be a good place, Bobbert. Mm. Uh, so, you know, as we know, it's a style of rock and pop that developed in the United Kingdom in the early 1970s, performed by musicians who wore ultra-outrageous costumes uh, and also makeup, had mad hairstyles, platform shoes and glitter. Mm. Informed, of course, by lots of stuff. Throwaway culture, uh, bubblegum pop, 50s rock and roll, cabaret, sci-fi and... Art rock as well, mustn't forget. No, absolutely. And uh, the flamboyant clothing and visual styles, that was what really, really set it apart. And also the kind of non-traditional gender roles, which, mm. you know, I mean, the androgyny is well documented, isn't it? The yeah. fact that uh, people started playing around with fashion. And it was called glitter rock as well. That was another uh, nom de plume, wasn't it? So if you were buying records any time from between sort of 1970, 71 through to 75... A lot of that stuff was coming from glam, wasn't it? Yeah, so we've discussed this before. I mean, uh, the appearance of the hype at the Roundhouse in February 1970 yeah. is destined, you know, to be the future of glam rock. That's mm. that's the story. But it was uh, in the March 1971 appearance of T-Rex on Top of the Pops. They were doing Hot Love, yeah. and Mark Boland, famously, he had glitter on his face. Mm. But the weird thing was, mentioning the hype, uh, and we have mentioned this before as well, it's the fact that Mark Boland went to see the hype at the Roundhouse. Yeah. And he wore a Roman breastplate. He did. And they all wore costumes. And mm. that's the night that they say glam rock was invented. But he had been on Top of the Pops previously. So in between the, uh, the hype show and Hot Love, he'd been on Top of the Pops doing Ride a White Swan, mm. which was the very first time that I saw a, a band on Top of the Pops where I thought to myself, that is mine, that belongs to right. me. You know. So right. that was my real first experience mm. of thinking, right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start getting a scrapbook together, all that kind of stuff. you know. And he looked quite dapper. Oh, you would right. have to say he had blue dungarees and a nice white blouse, but there was the glam side of it mm. and the theatricals hadn't appeared for Mark Bowen at that point in time. Okay, that's really interesting. So it wasn't until Hot Love. I mean, I'm trying to think my first kind of exposure to watch seeing glam on top of the pops, obviously, I'm slightly, slightly younger than you, mm. was probably seeing groups like Kenny and Sweet and that kind of thing, you know, because my sister was mad on all those bands. Yeah, the second wave. Well, we'll get to all of those. So, all right, then, let's go to David Bowie. We know mm. what Mark Boland's role is and the, and the, and the glitter on his cheeks and, and, and was very memorable. Mm. Uh, so Bowie had been concocting Ziggy Stardust since then. Yeah. And so he'd also been helping out Mott the Hooper, Lou Reed, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and they were all the component parts of the Ziggy Stardust character as well. And we, it's so well documented within this podcast series that we don't really need to go into that. Uh, but he also glammed up Mott the Hoople mm. with all the young dudes. I yeah. mean, he, he took them away from the hairy rockers. Some of my mates are that first wave of hairy rockers, you know. And, yeah. so, and so I think they were a little bit put, uh, taken aback when uh, they started wearing all the mad gear. Uh, but that's what they decided to do. And I'm glad that they did. Yeah. And then there was a the suite. The suite. Okay. So they were formed January 68, uh, initially called the Sweet Shop. All one word, probably not the best idea. Uh, they managed to sort of turn into a, a four-piece called The Army, uh, who sort of evolved from another band called The Countdowns. And then Frank Torpy was brought in to play guitar, made the debut at Hemel Hempstead at the Pavilion there in March 68. And they were just, a, you know, a, on the pub circuit. They were a pub band. Well, the thing is that they were managed by Paul Nicholas, mm. uh, who was the actor who'd been in Hair and had other Bowie associations yeah. as well. So it's a recurring theme here that they were a glam band. They were probably the most kind of uh, 
uh, obvious exponents of glam, are part and parcel of the bandwagon. Yes. Because at this point in time, they would have just been a rock band. Yeah, of course. And, and you know when they did Action, which I think is a really, really great single, yeah, yeah. and that sounds very like Queen, and also a little bit like Led Zeppelin, and it showed more of their roots, really. So kind of the, the really camp stuff that they used to do, particularly with Steve Priest, you know, with yeah. Ballroom Blitz yeah. and Blockbuster. And they kind of backed off that a little bit and got a, a little bit harder and mm. a little bit more serious going back to where I imagine they were when they were doing stuff in 1969 and, and they'd not jumped on the glam bandwagon. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned Blockbuster there, don't you? You've got the, you know, the famous Gene Genie riff. Yeah, going well, on there. that was just a coincidence. Apparently it was. Completely. As we know. We've got to mention Slade as well. I mean, Slade had sort of made this strange transition, hadn't they, from being a, you know, a skinhead band through to being uh, pub rockers, had a bit of a kind of gnarly following for a while, and then Glam comes along. They weren't really, you know, your typical Glam band, but apart from Dave Hill, because he went for it Absolutely 100%. He was Mr. Glam, was he? he and was. Noddy was a little bit glam as well. He had the top hat with the mirrors on and yeah. you know, and silk jackets and platform boots. Yes. But lest we forget, before they were a skinhead band, they were a psych band. Yeah. So they, you know, I mean, it was one of those things where, but, and, and Noddy was mad on soul music. Yeah. And so there were all of those different parts flying about and mm. then it all came together and to what great effect because Slade were just so ginormous, weren't they? They were the biggest of the lot, they by the way. They were massive. We've got to mention Mud as well, who were big for a, for a while. We talk about Tiger Feet and singles like that that were massive. Well, I remember they used to play around the corner from here. From where we're recording this now in my house, I would mm. say it's around about a mile away, Brooklyn's Trades and Labour Club. Ah, yeah. And they used to play there in the early 70s. And as I remember, my dad used to go and see them and he used to say that their name was Mud around there. Oh, Nike. Hey. Oh, brilliant. Hey. See what he did there, Very Mark. good, very good. We've got to mention Roxy Music, of course, who were coming from the sort of arty spectrum, so borrowing a lot of what had happened with uh, pop culture and just regurgitating or making giving it a different spin but they just looked fantastic I mean Eno and Ferry the rest of the Manzanera they all looked spectacular didn't they you didn't know where to look I think that for people like me it was T-Rex and Bowie Mott the Hoople and Roxy mm. they were like the four who really nailed it and going back again to having a look at a career which is slightly all over the shop is Roy Wood with Wizard yeah. who were a glam band ostensibly but they were you know yeah, they were a pop band certainly but he'd been in the move just mm. one of the great beat bands and garage bands, you know, and then he was also around about the same time concocting the Electric Light Orchestra, yeah. who weren't glam. So, uh, but he hid behind the makeup, didn't he? So he kind of got drawn into it, really. I think that was always Roy Wood's story that he was so criminally shy, but so super talented that he would inevitably be on top of the pops and be getting exposure and selling lots of records. But he couldn't deal with the machinery and the fame, mm. and so he just wore all of the really crazy makeup, had yeah. all his hair back combed, uh, just as a disguise to keep him away from the the limelight. Yeah. Also, it gave him the chance. He was obviously such a huge fan of fifties rock and roll. It gave him a chance to just explore that a bit. Now. I, I, like an excuse, really. He put all the whole makeup on, the whole works, and he could go back and do that stuff without really being accused of being retro because the image was so new. Well, I mean, the band used to all wear drape coats, didn't they? Mm. They were dressed as teddy boys as well. And talking of the 50s, you've got Alvin Stardust, who had, had a stab at it in the 60s, at least, as, as Shane Fenton. Yeah. So Alvin Stardust, and again, you know, he was just all the black leathers and the and the gloves and all that kind of stuff. Wasn't that sort of by accident? Didn't he sort of end up with, like, the... Did he have one glove? Was it two? I can't remember. Wasn't it because he was cold one night? There is a story, like, it wasn't like this premeditated great uh, image invention. It was just through necessity somehow. Really? He needed a pair of gloves for some reason. Okay, Maybe I'm it was not, dry. Driving somewhere. 
Right, okay. Possibly. Alan Partridge gloves. Yeah. Was, it? was that where it started? I mean, Very you possible. know, the thing about him, the only thing that was more black than his leather jacket and pants was his hair. His hair. How yeah. did he manage that? <laughs> Cockney Rebel, of course. Steve Harley being a massive Bowie fan. And he'd been at the Arts Lab, hadn't he, Steve Harley? So there was a slight connection there as well. Yeah, he'd taken over from Bowie when he left it, didn't he? Yeah. He'd, done, he'd taken over on the, uh, the Arts Lab. And it could also be argued that the Rolling Stones in 1973 went a bit glam, didn't they? Because I remember they played Bellevue. I didn't go to it, but I remember that tour being reported. And, uh, and Mick Jagger started wearing uh, the jumpsuits, didn't mm. he? And makeup. And so, and the, the cover of It's Only Rock and Roll, which we will get to in another section. Uh, so they definitely went a bit glam. Definitely. They were on the bandwagon. Going across the pond, so you look in the States, you've got people like Alice Cooper, who had themselves been through this strange transformation, haven't they? This sort of strange psychedelic rock prog band, really. And then suddenly it's all the makeup and the theatrics that sort of chime with glam. Lou Reed, who sort of ended up being glam by accident, was it? Well, yes, I mean, you know, he didn't see it coming, did he? I don't think. I mean, he just he, he wasn't daft, and his first album had stalled. I mean, I, I love parts of that album, but like a lot of Lou Reed stuff, it, was, it plundered the Velvet Underground mm. um, back catalogue, hadn't it, and stuff that hadn't actually made it to record. And, and David Bowie loved the Velvet Underground, as we know, so when he was invited by Bowie to make a record... Yeah, you would imagine that he didn't really have a good idea of what was going on. I mean, the story is that whilst he was recording the uh, his debut solo album, he was disinterested anyway. Mm. So when Bowie comes in, it was famous. You're probably thinking, yeah, well, you know, what have I got to lose, yeah. really? what's the harm? Iggy Pop, of course, I mean, the makeup and the spangly pants and all the rest of it. He was never glam, Iggy, was he? I mean, you know, if anything, he was glam before glam and yeah. Iggy Ziggy and all that kind of stuff. So I want to put Iggy in room 101 for glam. Oh, I'm I gonna, see. I'm going to push him to one side. Jabriath can take his place <laughs> quite easily. <laughs> like for like, eh? Anybody who doesn't know who Jabriath is, well, he was just a real character, obviously based on Bowie. And I know it had a tragic life yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we'll, we'll probably cover him as well yeah, at some point. Yeah, he was hyped like crazy for a while, wasn't he? And of course, you've got to mention the dolls, the New York dolls being the the original American glamours. Yeah, I mean, looking more towards the uh, Alice Cooper and Bowie and sounding more like the Stones, probably. Mm. So mid-70s then, really, glam was over, wasn't it? It was a short-lived thing. Yeah, apparently it was in 1973, so it was after the release of the Tanks album mm. by T-Rex, which I, which I loved, I thought it was a great record, but in the Melody Maker, uh, they ran the declaration, Glam Rock is dead. Mm. So I don't know who took it upon themselves to do that. But the strange thing is, that you know, then uh, Glam did kind of die out, and Mark Boland's career started to fade, and Bowie went off elsewhere. But then you got all the other bands coming through who were the teeny bands. So you had Arrows, and most famously probably, the Bay City Rollers, yeah. which, which kind of like sucked up the next generation of kids coming through who were interested in music but had kind of missed the boat with Bowie and Glam. And before we go any further, I just need to say, if you are a toddler and you're listening to this podcast and you're not really too aware of what Glam Rock is and you want to see some films or footage, T-Rex, Born to Boogie, that's that's a mad film. Oh, it's great. It's a great film. and uh, Well, in parts, it's great. The live footage is great. The rest of the messing about in the airfield and all that is... I don't mind that stuff. It's know. got a sort of 60s whimsy to that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's in the 70s. I know what you're saying. <laughs> that's why I like it, rather than the 60s. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, what else? Yeah, oh, obviously Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars and mm. Motion Picture. Phantom of Paradise by Brian De Palma. Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, definitely. There's a, an honourable mention. Slade in Flame is a really, really great uh, gnarly affair, Yeah, that's the it? grittier side of the music biz, isn't it? And we've got to mention Velvet Goldmine, which uh, Todd Haynes did in the late 90s, which has resurrected that whole era. It did. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. 
G is also for Gardner. Now, this isn't David Bowie's Gardner, who have not gone that deep in the research. No, this is Ricky Gardner. Yeah, Ricky Gardner, born 1948 in Edinburgh, best known as a guitarist and composer, joins his first band, the Vostoks, in 1962, inspired, like many people of that era, by Hank Marvin. Well, who wasn't? I mean, yeah. they all seem to be. But then again, of course, Hank Marvin was inspired by Buddy Holly's use of yeah. the strap, so it's all Buddy's fault. Yeah, so we trace it all back. Then came the King Bees, so there's a little interesting parallel with uh, an early Bowie band, and the system. Uh, so you had Martin Griffiths and Marshall Erskine in that band, as along with Ricky Gardner, and they went on to become Beggar's Opera in 1969. I love this. OK, so Beggar's Opera were prog rockers, and Gardner has called drummer Ray Wilson a wild man, wearing only a kilt, long beard, big hat, and nothing else. Ooh. And they weren't successful. No, they weren't. Go figure. Yeah, absolutely. So, they had plenty of touring activity. They toured uh, the UK and Europe extensively. They got signed to Vertigo Records in 1970, recorded four albums, Act One, Waters of Change, Pathfinder, and the brilliantly named Get Your Dog Off Me. Yeah, <laughs> Get Your Dog Off Me. And uh, But I've never heard of them. I mean, I this was... Well, this... I heard of the name. Yeah, I'd never even heard of the name. Right, and so, okay. I mean, I, and at this point in time, I, I've got a bad memory, so that doesn't help. But at this mm. point in time, I was buying, you know, The Enemy and Melody Maker and Sound yeah. religiously. So you would think that perhaps I had seen it, but never heard of them at all. Right, no. OK. So they do two more albums for uh, Jupiter Records in Germany. So they weren't sunning loads here, and you probably get the impression that Ricky Gardner's career isn't doing particularly well. But, stroke of luck, Ricky Gardner... Gardner gets asked by Tony Visconti to play on his solo album, Visconti's Inventory, in 1977. This also sort of coincides with the ex-Beggar's Opera Mellotron player called Virginia Scott, who uh, Ricky Gardner ended up marrying, working with Visconti on a space opera. Right, OK. I mean, again, this is new to me. So, you know, this whole podcast is littered with things that I've never heard of before, and I didn't know about Visconti's inventory either. I hadn't heard that until I started researching Ricky Gardner, well, I'll be honest. we need to check it out then, probably, yeah. don't we? Uh, but, yeah, when Visconti went to Paris to produce Low with Bowie, mm. he suggested Ricky Gardner as a guitarist. So Bowie phoned him up, didn't he, and yeah. invited him over. But he'd also wanted uh, Klaus Dinger. Yeah, first of all, he'd ask Klaus Dinger from Neu, who you wouldn't normally associate as a guitar player, although he did play guitar. He, he played all instruments, yeah. didn't he? Great, though. Bowie just said that Dinger declined in the most polite and diplomatic fashion. I'll so bet. Garner was really the second choice, although Visconti really stood by him and supposedly wanted him uh, to play guitar on The Idiot for Iggy Pop. He was on standby. He didn't make it in the end, but right. he, you know, he rated him highly enough. OK, yeah. So he did. He played lead guitar on low. He had a really, really distinctive sound, which Bowie and Visconti loved. Mm. And he, the solos always crashing in the same car. He, just absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And uh, Visconti called him the unsung hero, actually. Yeah. Um, what in the World and Breaking Glass, all that guitar yeah. work, just brilliant. So in 77, uh, after Low Gardner went to Berlin to rehearse with uh, Bowie and Iggy Pop for the tour that, after The Idiot. So the rehearsals took place in a place called uh, the UFA Film Studio, which is where Joseph Goebbels used to make the Nazi propaganda films. That is so, wild, yeah. isn't it? So, uh, and they were joined by Hunt and Tony Sales, a later of Tim Machine, of course, and they toured the UK and the US to promote The Idiot album between March and April. That's a legendary tour, as we know. Is that the tour you saw? Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. All right. So after that, went back to Berlin, recorded Lust for Life. So Gardner's all all over that. In fact, he uh, co-wrote The Passenger, famously with Iggy Pop, and also Neighbourhood Threat and Success with uh, Iggy and Bowie. Neighbourhood Threat, of course, revived by Bowie for Tonight in 1984, and later covered by Duran Duran, can you believe? Well, that's where he will have made his money, you know, mm. that's that's the thing. I mean, uh, those checks will be dropping year in, year out for him, won't he? And yeah. he did say that the riff of The Passenger came to him one spring morning when he was out walking amid the flowers and the apple blossom, all very <laughs> idyllic, and then he just started playing a chord sequence. Mm. And apparently when Bowie and Iggy got together, 
together and heard him playing it, yeah. they just thought, well, okay, that's it. And so Iggy took the riff on a cassette, yeah. went away with it, the next day came back with the lyrics for The Passenger. Hey, presto, done. Done in 24 hours. So he's touring again. Well, he got asked to tour with, with Iggy again on Lust for Life, but he'd just become a father and he decided, look, I don't want to do this. I'm going to stay home. So that's where it's sort of... Well, it doesn't end there because he then appears with uh, Bowie doing a version of Heroes on Top of the Pops where you'd have to sort of you know, re-record the backing track. So there's him trying to approximate Robert Fripp's riff. He was convinced that Fripp had used like an Ebo on his guitar, but he hadn't actually. So he said, I just didn't realise, you know, how he got that in the first place. So I just decided to uh, do it using feedback. Which is probably how Robert Fripp did it Which in the first place. It's exactly how he did it. Yes, we didn't realise at the time. So 78, Gardner sets up his own recording studios, started writing music for meditation practice and then exploring what computers could do in music and then getting into ambient music. And then, you know, a solo career, you know, sort of discreet one. I suppose. And backed up by the checks that we've just mentioned. Yeah. But it's a strange one. And obviously, this is tragic for a musician. So, but in 1995, he developed electrosensitivity. So, the upshot being, he wasn't able to spend long periods of time with computer related devices. So, he couldn't really be in a studio for long. He certainly couldn't sit with a, you know, a laptop. Uh, and he believed that this sort of hypersensitivity was a result of him being exposed to high levels of computer radiation and magnetic fields. That's tragic. The Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. G is also for Gail Ann Dorsey. So she grew up in the 1970s in West Philadelphia and started playing guitar from the age of nine, citing Mark Farmer of Grand Funk Railroad, Terry Kath of Chicago, Jimi Hendrix, inevitably, and Nancy Wilson of Heart as her early influences. Yeah, OK, so she gets a bass, a first bass, shortly after her 14th birthday. Didn't consider herself a bass player, though, until she was 20, which is interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, it's a strange route to go into, really. It is, really. I mean, no offence to bass players, mm. which obviously means I'm going to offend some bass players at this point in time, but I was a bass player, mm. And I wasn't a very good one. So, you know, people in glass houses and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, people quite often start on the bass mm. and then go through to guitar. Yeah. It, it would work the way up. But uh, she kind of did it the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. Although you also get an idea at this time already, these sort of arty sensibilities are coming through because she's writing feature-length screenplays to accompany some of her uh, musical compositions. Yeah. She goes to the California Institute of the Arts in the School of Film and Video. And then she gets a scholarship with her screenplays and she makes Super 8 films. So there's lots of possibilities going on. There is, but then she just decided that she didn't want any of it. Mm. So fair play to her. I mean, she put all that work into it and tried it and thought it wasn't for her. So at the age of 22, very brave, really, she moved yeah. to London to pursue a musical career. Yeah. Now, she's obviously hugely talented and, and got a great voice as well. And so it's probably not such a great risk. Uh, but she, uh, she met up with a guy called Pete Stern, a keyboard player and composer. She started to work with him. Mm. And then, this is great, this. And then, you know, how about this for a CV? Starts to work with lots of other people including uh, Anne Pigal, Boy George and, believe it or not, Donny Osmond. Yeah, mm. that, that is a real curveball, isn't it? And her uh, first high-profile job was a guest vocalist in the original lineup of the Charlie Watts Big Band 1985 premiere at London's famous West End jazz club, Ronnie Scott. Yeah, she's on the Tube as well. So she's obviously in the radar, isn't yeah. she, of, of, of the uh, people? Absolutely, there. so she appears on the Tube. First solo album, The Corporate World, comes out in 1987. She's signed with Warners. So it's all happening, it seems to be happening really quickly for her. Yeah, but you've got to jump now ahead seven years, yeah. right? And she starts doing session work, because she is a really accomplished bass player. And she's recruited for uh, David Bowie's band while they were undertaking the tour for the uh, Outside album. Yeah. So as a sort of a bit of background about how it came about. So in 1989, Bowie was kind of flipping through the channels on TV 
in England. He came across an interview with uh, Gail Ann Dorsey promoting her debut album and he thought to himself, this woman's really interesting. These are quotes here. Uh, when I'm doing the right project, I'd love to work with her. So he obviously keeps her in mind there. Six years later, he's putting together a band to go on tour with Nine Inch Nails. So he gives her a call. Ask what she's up to. Do you fancy joining the band? I mean, this is interesting, isn't it? Because most people just go to their manager or go to, you know, the PR or whoever it is and just say, can you do this work? But Bowie would do this himself, wouldn't he, firsthand? A lot of people have said this, and, and, and it's, it's almost a cliche that they can't believe it's Davy Bowie on the other end of the phone. So she said, I was kind of in shock that it actually was him on the phone at first. I thought it was somebody playing a prank on me. <laughs> and when I realised it wasn't, I said to him, I'm in the middle of making a record. Let me speak to my producer and I'll get back to you. So they just started recording this album. They'd mm. all already invested money in it, but a producer said, it's David Bowie, you've got to go. Sound advice, you've got to say, haven't Absolutely. you? Absolutely. So, uh, I mean, she'd loved Young Americans, so, and maybe it was something to do with growing up in Philadelphia, Possibly. perhaps. But she started out on a six-week contract with Bowie, wound up serving as Bowie's touring basis all the way through to his last ever gigs in 2004. Yeah, and I was I was lucky enough to go over to America to watch one of the dates with Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. It was actually at Mansfield Great Wood Centre, so it was the 14th of September, oh. 1995, and it was a couple of days later that Mark Radcliffe and I did the very first interview that we did with David Bowie, oh. uh, which we recorded in a tiny studio on, on Broadway where um, they used to do the Letter from America. Oh, the Alistair Cook. Cook, wow. Yeah, wow. and uh, and uh, we'll talk about that particular event further down the line somewhere, okay. I'm not sure where. But the show was really, really weird and quite stark. I'll let her um, um, explain it, but she okay. said it was really cool. I think we always went over the audiences. I didn't know Nine Inch Nails at the time. I'd heard of them, but I didn't know how huge they were until the tour began. We used to do this kind of morphing in the show, so it was seamless. Nine Inch Nails played, and then we played, but there was never a break between them leaving the stage and us starting. David would come out and do something with Trent Reznor, and then one member of our band would come on and do the next song, and they'd lose two more members of the band for the next one. Slowly, we came onto the stage. It was very, very cool. Wow, interesting. So oh, it was okay. a transition. So I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure if the the point in time where both Trent Reznor and Bowie were on stage, they weren't doing Hurt, which is a Nine Inch Nails song that Johnny Cash made. Yeah, famous. wow. I, I could be wrong with that, but I think that's I think that's as it was. All right. So after she'd been on the outside tour, she's doing uh, bass and vocals for Earthling. 97 Heathen Reality and of course the next day uh, she did A Planet of Dreams which is a duet with Bowie on the um, EMI Benefit CD release for Long Live Tibet yeah and probably what she will be most famous for I mean you know what always there with Bowie and always so mm. brilliant but her performance doing the Freddie Mercury role in Under Pressure mm. was just breathtaking because let's face it Freddie Mercury had one of the great operatic voices to be able to stand in those shoes is uh, something else and she did it absolutely brilliantly G is for the Gouster. Now, this is an interesting one. So this is Bowie's lost 1974 album that preceded uh, Young Americans. So we go through the songs that are on here. First of all, John and Money Dancing Again. Which is obviously, we're looking at John and Money Dancing, which was Ziggy era, and then he does Again in 74, which is, you know, sort of preempting disco. I mean, disco wasn't really massive at this point, but Bowie's right on it. Do you know, it's funny, um, I had a band called the Orioles live in session for me, mm. and uh, they've got a, a single called Blue Suitcase, brackets, disco wrist. 
And I said, right, disco wrist, what's that? And Henry, the guitarist, is a young guy, is a really, truly gifted fella. Mm. Uh, and he told me that disco wrist, he said, I bet Nile Rogers has got it. So it's, you oh, know, it's the that. disco. Yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. your hand's going constantly, you know, like it's not, you're not picking notes no. out. You're not doing the chug of the 12 bar. You're doing the disco with, yeah, your, yeah. with your wrist really kind of flimsy. Right. And it takes its toll. Um, and so you would imagine there was a little bit of a, di- <laughs> I wonder if they had a, a tour doctor with them on the Philly dogs. Oh, oh doctor, my disco wrist anyway i digress they were all suffering a bit so uh, that's on there I mean, it didn't come out as a single until 79 wasn't it which you know probably the height of the disco era uh, you've got somebody up there likes me which ended up on young america's one of the great bowie songs from that era sometimes my favorite david bowie tune, yeah. yeah it's okay. going to be me which is a better better than across the universe oh yeah I'll just has well, to be said doesn't it bob really yeah. you know it's just one of those things and it was very influenced by aretha franklin's natural woman or carol king if you like yeah okay which whatever one you prefer and now who can i be now which was supposed to open uh, side two this gave its name to the recent box set this is one of the great bowie tunes isn't it we didn't make it onto young americans a very kind of personal lyric about you know putting on a face that somebody has to see playing a role very kind of you could read so much into that if you like it really is if it's all a vast creation putting on a face that's new someone has to see a role for him and me someone might as well be you a major role for every day please help me just Ah, oh, it's it is a cry for help in a way, and it, yeah. you know, but it's just so brilliant. It is wonderful, and then you've got "Can You Hear Me," which you'd be familiar with already on Young Americans, Young Americans itself, and Right. So seven tracks on there. I think there were supposed to be ten. Three of them offcuts, weren't they? Yeah. So there's also "I'm a Laser," "Shilling the Rubes," and "After Today," and also in the same sessions at Sigma, they recorded a real, what I think is a great version of Bruce Springsteen's uh, "It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City." Yeah. Though Bruce Springsteen turned up, had a listen, didn't like it. He didn't, did he? Which probably. Did did lead to Bowie not using it. And mm. then, of course, he ends up with another cover version across the universe, which mm. isn't as good. I as good. keep saying that. Sorry. It's not as good. I think he was being friendly to his mate John Lennon, wasn't he, with well, that Well, quite possibly, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, famously, they all think the album's done. Whether Bowie does in his heart of hearts, we don't know. Now, according to Visconti, I mean, the way it was done, it said the album contains about 85% live David Bowie. It was kind of done in that spirit. Bowie knew he couldn't really get the sound he really wanted, though, with the band he'd had on the road for the previous few months. There'd been a fallout, which we've discussed in uh, various episodes on the David Live album. So he brought in musicians from the sort of funk and soul community to work with that he'd met earlier on. So you've got people like Luther Vandross, Andy Newmark, uh, the drummer of uh, Sly and Family Stone, and Carlos Alomar, famously. Yeah, Mike Garson put it this way. He said, It, which was the tour, went from the East Coast to the West Coast as one band and came back from the West Coast to the East Coast as another band. I was in both of those bands. So most of the people got fired in the Diamond Dogs band. Um, you know, David Live and all that mm. stuff, falling out, not paying them, uh, bad kind of vibes and all of that. You yeah. Know? Uh, and he said, I was made musical director and I had Luther Vandross singing with me and David Sanborn playing and six backup singers and two drummers. So Bowie was also famously inspired by the Philly soul sound, and we've talked about this before, and he's in the limo in the Cracked Actor documentary, isn't he, talking about that? And so he booked Sigma Sound Studios, intending to book a couple of weeks with the house band, but there were a series of, well, mess-ups, cock-ups, weren't there? Yeah, MFSB was the house band, and Mm. he wanted to bring them in because they all knew each other, they were all great players, they played on loads of hits and loads of great tunes, and the only one that he could actually get was the conga player, which was Larry Washington. That's right. So then that meant he had to hire the band that Garson had described working with beforehand. So he had, essentially, it was an assortment of New York session players, wasn't it? So you got Alomar, Willie Weeks uh, on bass and drummer Andy Newmark, as mentioned before. Willie Weeks did a load of work with Al Green. Oh, yeah. Just a legendary. Yeah, yeah. terrific. 
Uh, and then so you've got uh, Young Americans, a song which Bowie said was about the uh, predicament of two newlyweds. That took two days to record, apparently. Yeah, David Sanborn was all over it, wasn't mm. he? You know, and uh, I've been just done a bit of research on him. I know, I know, Bob. Wow. Uh, and, and he played with various different people, but he also uh, worked with the Eagles. I didn't know that. I, I'm thinking it was probably just in a live style because okay. he didn't appear to be on any, uh, any of the records. But he, his contribution to both Gauster and Young Americans is absolutely huge. It isn't is. It? It's yeah. immense. So the sessions at Sigma Sound lasted until November 1974. Story being that once the seven tracks had been approved and were recorded by everybody, including Bowie, he thought the album was finished, so Tony Visconti packed his bags, dashed off to London to do the final mixes. Yeah, and this is how Tony Visconti remembers it. He said, a week or so later, I was in London mixing the album and I got a call from David. Uh, Tony, I don't know how to tell you this, but John and I have wrote a song together and we've recorded it and mixed it. It's called Fame! (laughs) Probably. And he said he explained that he went back to the studio and recorded Lennon's Across the Universe for a lark. Mm. For a lark. Mm. And it turned out to be good enough to include on Young Americans, Frassum Grassum. He later played the track to Lennon, who thought it was cool, and David asked him if he would like to write and record a new song together. This led to the making of Fame, which Ah, we covered in Foot Stomping and Fame as well previously. And you could imagine that Tony Visconti probably wasn't best pleased with all this. Yeah, you wouldn't be, would you really? Uh, fascination and Win. Uh, win is is my favourite from Young Americans. One of my favourite Bowie tunes, full stop. Recorded at Record Plant in New York in December 74. As we mentioned, Across the Universe and Fame at Electric Lady Studios, January 75 in New York. And they replaced the previously recorded stuff, which is, who can I be now? <laughs> they should be on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's going to be me on the record. Although, of course, these songs later released as uh, bonuses and on box sets. Yeah, so apart from the Gauster, Bowie did consider other titles for the album. It was going to be called Somebody Up There Likes Me, One Damn Song and Fascination. Mm. And uh, you brought the cover in with you there, Bob. I have. Of... I'm going to pass this over to you there. It's, uh, very much, it's a mate. great sort of sepia black and white shot of Bowie. Well, uh, the cover is him lying down, isn't it? Has he got his denim jacket sort of draped over him somehow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's some newspaper, isn't ah, it? That's it's right. a newspaper. You always get them to mix up. Do you know when you, turn up the to the, when you turn up to the pub, you know, and you've got that newspaper wrapped round you, I'm thinking, what's he doing? But you've obviously got it mistaken for your denim jacket. Oh, I always get those two jacket. mixed up. Yeah. But the back cover features really, really uh, a great shot of Bowie. I had a slightly different version of this shot, but he's got the uh, the NASA, the uh, the spacesuit kind of, oh, uh, yes. you know, jumpsuit on mm. there. And he's got his hair partially blonde, and he's got the stars and stripes hanging behind him. Mm. He's got handcuffs on, yes. and he's got the jumpsuit, where, you know, the zips right down to his uh, pubic area. It is, yes. Uh, which is covered on this particular instance. Mm. But I had a poster, and remember it so well, I had a poster on my bedroom wall, and he had his hands tucked inside the jumpsuit, right. and you could see some of his... Um, Cool. Nether hair. Really? Could you? You could, wow. yeah. Well, okay. you could for a while anyway, until my mum came up one day right. whilst I was out, took the scissors to it, really? and and really. And so one day I just came <laughs> to my bedroom, lay down on my bed, looked up at the poster, and it was, it'd been, uh, yeah. Trimmed. Trimmed. Wow. <laughs> well, I, I don't think she used clippers or, or a pair of scissors, but wow. I was really not happy at wow. all. It was just such a, it was a brilliant, brilliant poster. And Bro, yeah, oh. truncated. This brings me to the question, not that really. I don't know why. That would bring me to the question. We talk about the Gauster. What is a Gauster? Oh, well, it's a hipster, isn't it? From well, Chicago. Antiquated slang for uh, a black American streetwise, jive talking, sharp dressing dude. Uh, the new pose that Bowie himself was affecting, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, Tony Visconti said, uh, Gauster was a word unfamiliar to me, but David knew it as a. Uh, type of dress code worn by African-American teens in the 60s in Chicago. In the context of the album, its meaning was, was attitude, an attitude of pride and hipness. 
Garson, Philip Glass, George Murray, Glastonbury, Bob Grace, 